Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 20th, 2022, and this is show number 915. Well, next week is Thanksgiving, and I've got a whole slew of wonderful entries for our I'm Still Using It segment. These are stories of hardware or software people are still using after a long time and how these things still help them. While I do have a whole slew, as I said, they're mostly really short. I did say you only had to write a paragraph or two, and I think it's fun like this, but it means I need even more for the week between Christmas and New Year's. So please keep looking around for things you're still using and still enjoying, and send me an email entitled I'm Still Using It to allison at podfeet.com, and I can read it on the show. As a reminder, if you want to, you can record your story, but you absolutely do not have to. Thank you so much to everyone who has sent in their stories already. I often come across a really powerful tool that solves many problems and has in-depth capabilities that are far beyond anything I need to use. And yet that same tool solves a few problems for me. I hesitate to tell you about tools like this because I know I wouldn't be doing the tool justice if I did, even though you might benefit from the capabilities I do understand. Jill from the Northwoods turned me on to Notion from Notion.so. Notion is a cross-platform app designed to help teams collaborate on notes, tables, and more. Jill started using Notion when she expanded her single podcast, Start With Small Steps, to a vast empire of two podcasts and added a partner on the second show. I like to tease her about her empire because she has plans for quite a few more. When Jill started expanding to have a partner in crime, she needed a collaboration tool, and she chose Notion. You can pretty much get me to download and install any tool by simply saying, hey, this is neat, so I started giving Notion a play. Now, Bart and I do all of our collaboration using the version control system Git, which meant I could use the free version of Notion since I'm essentially a team of one. Notion also has a $4 per month personal pro version, an $8 per month team version, and they support enterprise licensing. Now, I'm absolutely not going to walk through what Notion can do. Rather, I'm going to describe the two small problems I've solved with Notion, and maybe that'll tickle your brain to give it a try. The first problem I decided to solve with Notion was how to keep track of all the tiny Mac tips I was writing and producing in different formats. As you probably remember, I've been writing blog posts with several tips bundled in each post. So far, I've published five blog posts filled with tips. Then I got the great idea to demonstrate these tiny Mac tips in a video tutorial on Screencast Online. I had so much fun doing the first one that I convinced them to let me do a second video tutorial with another set of tips. Now, I generally create mind maps for my video tutorials to organize all of my ideas, but I was finding it increasingly difficult to keep track in my mind map which tips were in which blog post but would map to which tutorial for Screencast Online because there obviously wasn't a one-to-one mapping. This was a three-dimensional problem that was ill-suited for a mind map. I was in the middle of this mess when Jill told me about how fun and easy the database capability inside Notion was. In Notion, I created a new page, and one of the choices was to create a database. You can start with a table, board, which is also known as a Kanban board, a list, timeline, calendar, or gallery. Each of these options is just a different view of the database you're going to create. You can choose any view you like to start and add the others in if you end up needing them. I grew up in spreadsheet world, of course, so I started with the table view and added the other views as I needed them. My goal, again, is to have a way to see each of my tips in two completely different contexts, blog posts and screencast online videos. 
Some of the blog posts have already been created, but I've been adding new tips over time, and I needed it to help me decide which tips to do on which Screencast Online videos. In the table view, Notion starts you off with two columns, a text column called name and a tags column. This makes it easy to start, but you can immediately change the database fields to other types and add more fields to the right. The first field in a database seems to be sort of sacred. I don't really understand exactly why, but it, it is important. So take care in thinking about what your primary bit of information is before you start. In my example, it was pretty obvious that the first field should be the name of each tiny Mac tip. The next two fields, blog posts and SCO video, seem to cry out to be multi-select. That'll work better because they're predefined and multiple records will be in each one. For example, as I kept writing more Mac Tiny tips, the blog posts were called part one, part two, etc., with multiple tips in each post. Creating a select field is super easy, and Notion automatically color codes your entries, so it's pretty. Now, after I enter the unique name of the tip, I can just tap in the blog post field and select which post it's in. I knew I would have at least two Screencast Online videos, but I'm hoping I'm going to get to do a third, so I created SCO part one, two, and three as selects for that field as well. Once I entered all of the tips I had written and assigned them to the blog posts, I needed to figure out which tips would go into which SCO video. Now, if this was a spreadsheet, I'd be stuck with this view, which wouldn't be very helpful for figuring out which tip should go in which video. But since this is a database, I've got more options. I chose a board next, and I asked it to group by SCO video number. Since some of my tips would never see the light of day in a Screencast Online video, I can even filter those out by removing that attribute's visibility. This created columns for the three SCO videos I hope to do, and one column for unassigned tips. When I started working on sorting them, the unassigned tips column was full of little cards representing each tip, and all of the other columns were empty. I could then tap on any card in the unassigned column to reveal a little window where I could see all of the fields for that record. I could tap on the SCO video field and select which video would have get to have that tip. The little card would then jump from the unassigned column to the newly assigned video number. It was super fun to be able to sort them just like playing cards, and I could easily see whether I had sprinkled them around evenly. I also started to triage the tips while I was doing this. I found a few that had already been covered by other Screencast Online tutors, and a few that just didn't seem like they'd be that interesting in video. I created new selects for those options and sorted the cards appropriately to their new assignments. As I started working on my recording for my first video tutorial for Screencast Online, I was working down my list of tips for that video and I assigned a new field for status. I had whether it had been outlined or whether it was in work or whether it was done. Another slick feature of Kanban boards is that you can choose to have other fields shown in the little cards, so I allowed visibility of the status for each tip. All of this made for a super fun, colorful, and easy way for me to keep track of all of this data that was a big mess before I started. I did try one thing that didn't work very well in a Notion database. I wanted a column with a link to the blog post itself for each tip. That would have been super helpful while creating the video, so it would be easy to just click on it from the Notion database and look at it in my own notes. I was able to create the field, and I was able to put the links into the field, but for the life of me, I couldn't find a way to make them be active links where I could click on them and they'd open up in a browser. I'm still hopeful that I'll get to do a third Screencast Online video with my existing list of tips, and I'm still adding more tips to the list so that when I have enough stacked up, I can do another blog post. Now here's another use I found for Notion that's much less complicated. 
Every week I write articles for the show and I get listener contributions from time to time. I've kind of declared 40 minutes to be the minimum show length, but longer's okay. If the show gets to going too long, I'll sometimes save an article I've written for the following week, which is kind of like buying time in the future. It's really nice when I have too much content. Now, my writing tools give me an estimate of how long it'll take to reach each, read each article, and I've been typing the article names and times into a spreadsheet for the last few months. Each week, I move the spreadsheet into the next week's folder, and the whole thing is really messy and icky. Now, I didn't know if Notion could help me with this, because I didn't know if it could do math, but I gave it a shot anyway. I used the primary first field for the show air date, and I used a date field type. I made a text field for the article name, and then I threw in a time column with a number field. It took a while to find out if that if you hover over the bottom of any field column, even text columns, it will offer to do calculations for you. If it's a text column, it could do things like count the entries, count unique values, tell you the percentage of them that are empty, and more. If you've actually got numbers in your field, you get all of these options plus sum, average, median, min, max, and range. On my time field, I simply told it to calculate the sum at the bottom, and it worked. But that only worked for one week. As soon as I started entering the articles for the following week, the times for the two weeks just got all added together. It was then that I realized I could add a filter to my database, and while I'm working on only the current week's show, I can filter to see just that data for the week, and the sum will be for just one week, so it works great. Now, remember I said that sometimes I save articles for the following week? With my Notion database, I can enter the future date when I move it, and it disappears from this filtered list. That was nice, but I found another fun feature of Notion. One of the views you can choose is a calendar. With a calendar view of the data, I can get situational awareness of the articles for the current and future weeks, and even the past weeks. Here's another problem that solves. Sometimes, I think I already did an article, but I haven't. And sometimes I try to do an article that I've already used. Now at a glance, I can see the last few weeks to verify I'm not reusing an article or missing one entirely. If I hover over a date, there's a plus button in this calendar view, which allows me to even create new records right from that calendar view with the date already pre-populated. Notion allows you to have little tabs set up for the different views you've created, so I can easily toggle back and forth between the calendar for situational awareness and the table view for whether I've written enough for this week's show. Now, I know these specific examples of how I use Notion are nothing like what anyone else needs to do, but my hope is that by explaining how I use Notion to solve my obscure problems, you might find things that it can do for you. Notion is free for personal use from Notion.io. On a recent episode of the Mac Geek Gab, listener John sent in a suggestion to try an app called Velja from open source developer Sindra Sorhas. And it was described as a browser picker. You know, I just finished telling you, if you tell me something's neat, I'm going to go install it. So I decided to go check it out. And I am very pleased to say that this free app solves some real problems. Let's walk through the problems to be solved first, and then I'll describe how Velja solves them. Many web services are now designed to require you to use a Chromium browser, such as Microsoft Edge, Opera, or even Google Chrome. This concerns me a great deal, having lived in the bad old days when web services required ActiveX. ActiveX was a proprietary capability only available in Internet Explorer on Windows, leaving Mac users out in the cold. I know it's not the same thing, but I don't like the trend, even though Chromium browsers run on the Mac. But you know what? That's the world we're in now. 
If your default browser is not a Chromium browser, you're going to have problems when you try to access one of these features. If you like, say, Safari or DuckDuckGo, which are both WebKit browsers, these services won't let you in. Likewise, if you use quantum-based Firefox, you'll be denied access and told to use a Chromium browser instead. Many of these sites say you have to use Google Chrome. That's misleading, or at least an oversimplification, because you can definitely use Chromium browsers such as Edge or Opera. Steve and I are using StreamYard to broadcast the live show, and every single week, I click on the StreamYard link Steve sends me, it opens in Safari, tells me it won't work, and then I painstakingly copy the link, open a compatible browser, and paste in the link. I hate wasting time like this. There may be those of you who do remember before clicking, but you still have to copy the URL, open the alternate browser, and then paste it in. Velja fixes this problem. Now here's another one. You get an invite to a Zoom meeting and you click the link. It opens your web browser, but it immediately says, can I open this in the desktop app? Well, what if it could open the desktop app directly from the link? Wouldn't that be swell? Velja can fix that. Now, I'm betting there are privacy-minded folks here who want to use DuckDuckGo for everything, but they find it doesn't work for everything they do. What if you could flip browsers on the fly? Velja will let you do this too. All right, let's get to how Velja performs all this magic. Velja installs as a menu bar app and as a browser extension. When you run Velja for the first time, it'll request that you allow it to be your default browser. Well, my instinct was to say no because I wanted Safari to be my default. But as I learned how Velja does its job, I realized it's like a traffic job, sorry, a traffic cop whose job is to direct links to different browsers. It needs to be the default browser in order to direct that traffic. Once installed, it's time to jump into Velja's preferences to get to the real power of the app. Velja installs, as I said, as a menu bar app, so you have quick access to those preferences. If we jump into the Apps tab in Preferences, you'll see a pre-populated list of common tools that have dedicated desktop web apps. Next to each name is a dropdown allowing you to choose your local desktop version or direct it to open in a specific browser of your choosing. I scrolled to the bottom and I saw Zoom in the list, and I set it to open Zoom links in the Zoom app. I raced over to Calendar and I clicked the link in the standing event I have to record with Bart, and I squealed like a little girl with delight when the Zoom app opened instead of Safari when I clicked that link. Now, the full list of tools in the pre-populated list include ClickUp, Discord, Figma, Google Meet, Jitsi Meet, Linear, Miro, Notion, Oh, Notion. I have to check that out. Spotify, Telegram, Trello, Twitter, YouTube, Zeppelin, and Zoom. Okay, let's say you like Chrome, but you don't want Google knowing what you watch on YouTube. That's kind of a contrived example, but work with me here. You can set YouTube to open in DuckDuckGo while your default browser is still Chrome. Now, some apps from the Mac App Store require a little bit of attention when assigned to open certain links. I tested setting Twitter links to open in my favorite app, Tweetbot, sorry, Tweetbot, and I got this message in a pop-up. It said, the app Tweetbot does not declare support for URLs. Velja cannot directly open URLs with this app because of App Store restrictions. To support this, you need to copy the file open.sh into this big, long described uh, link in this folder. Both of these will be shown to you. Even with this, there's no guarantee the target app can actually handle these URLs. Well, that sounded super scary, but when I clicked OK, Velja automatically opened two folders, and I got another pop-up telling me to just copy this tiny one-line script file from one folder to the other. 
Sandra was nice enough to explain that drag and drop isn't the same as copy, so be sure to actually copy and paste. It was kind of an odd thing to do, but it certainly was not difficult. Now, all of the Twitter links David Roth sends me about the imminent demise of Twitter will open up in TweetBot instead of the web. Now, here's a quick nerd alert just for the nerds. Inside the package for Velja, he's got a script folder and then a bash script called open.sh. And the entire script is open, quote, dollar, at sign, unquote. The bash script then gets copied to library application scripts, com.syndrasorhas.velja. So it's not scary. All right, this is back for everybody now. The next coolest, or maybe the coolest capability in Velja is controlled in the Rules tab. Here you can tell Velja what kind of links should open in which browser or app. As a reminder, my main problem to be solved is that StreamYard will only run under a Chromium browser. I'm really weary of copying pasting those URLs in like an animal, so let's see if I can use Velja to open all StreamYard links in Microsoft Edge. To create a new rule, you drop in a sample URL and then tell it what to look for. By default, it'll suggest that you look into your URL and just find the domain within that URL. If it's successful, it'll show you the match it found with a happy green check mark. Tap save and you're done. I built my little rule to find all StreamYard links and then I went to Telegram where Steve sent me last week's invite. When I clicked on the link, it gloriously opened in, in Edge and it worked again today for the live show. Yay! I get excited by the smallest things. Well, if for some reason by matching uh, by domain doesn't work, you can also ask Velja to search by domain and subdomain, or by URL prefix, URL contains, or you can build your own regular expression if you're Alistair Jenks. You can create rules that cause all links clicked from within a specific source app to be opened in a specific browser. As a test, I created a rule that causes all links clicked inside Slack to be opened in DuckDuckGo, and that worked. I'm not a Microsoft Teams user, but I know it gives you quick access to your Teams SharePoint files, and maybe it would work best if they were always open in Edge, even though your default browser is Firefox. You can do that in Velja. By the way, Velja runs each rule in order, so if you have multiple rules that deal with a related task, you can reorder them to make sure they function properly. Now, you know how sometimes you find something looks interesting to share and you copy the link, but the URL ends up being some giant glop of text? Well, that giant glop is often filled with tracking parameters. If you share it, not only does it look really annoying to the receiver, you're providing even more information to those who are trying to track you on the internet. When I encounter this problem, I usually strip off everything from the question mark to the end of the URL. The question mark is what starts uh, the query string where all the tracking parameters go. This method isn't foolproof though, because sometimes the query string contains important information. That query string can include key value pairs that identify the exact thing that you're actually trying to show. So let's say you found a link to address you like. The link might include size equals large and color equals blue. If you sent the URL without those terms, the person wouldn't know which dress you wanted for your birthday. So it's a tedious process at best to remove the tracking parameters the way I've been doing it. And at worst, you could miss critical parts of the URL. In Velja, on the Extras tab in Preferences, you have two checkboxes that you might want to engage. The first instructs Velja to remove tracking parameters when you open links from others, yay, and the second removes tracking parameters when copying links to send elsewhere. I did a little testing, and for the most part, it worked. I did find that TikTok URLs weren't stripped properly. 
I sent a note to Syndra, and he explained back that TikTok changes the way they do it, so he has to keep updating his algorithm. I hope that game of whack-a-mole won't get too exhausting for him. In the Browsers tab of Velja, you select your primary and secondary browser. Now, this is kind of an unusual option, so let me explain how it works. Let's say I have Safari as my default browser and Opera as my secondary browser. If I simply click a link, it will open in Safari. But if I hold down function, the function key when I click, it'll automatically open in my secondary browser, Opera. On the same Browsers tab, you also define which browsers are shown in the dropdown from the Velja menu bar app. If you use different profiles in your Chromium browsers, like say one for work and one for home, you can grant access to Velja to show your different profiles as though they were separate browser options. Now that you have everything automated to your heart's delight with preferences for Velja, there's something interesting and I would say oddly delightful that you can have with your browsers. If you open the menu bar app for Velja, you'll see a dropdown containing a list of the browsers you specified in preferences, including your browser profiles. From there, you can change your default browser on the fly. You can also choose an option called Prompt. With Prompt selected, when you click a link, instead of it opening in a browser, you'll see a very pretty pop-up with the icons for your available browsers. Tap on the one you want, or type the number under it, and your link will open in that selected browser. I know this interactive prompt sounds like extra work, and it definitely is, but there's something very pleasing about the interface that I enjoy. If you like to control your browsing experience at all times, I think you might like the interactive prompt. Now, one important note is that any rules you have defined overrule the choice you make from the interactive prompt. So in my example, where I've created a rule that says all StreamYard links should open in Edge, if I later try to open a StreamYard link in DuckDuckGo, it's still going to open in Edge. I think that's a good design. Velja has a browser extension for Safari and Chromium-based browsers. The extension doesn't do a lot, but it could be handy. Let's say you're on a site in Chrome in your home profile, and you realize you need to be in your work profile. If you click on the extension in the toolbar, you'll get that delightful interactive prompt allowing you to select the alternate profile and automatically open the link. Obviously, you could do this to change browsers entirely as well. I've given you a really good start on how to use Velja, but Syndra has even more tips on usage on the Velja page of his website. There are more keystroke options. You can download a mini app that allows you to add a private Safari browser option to your list and more. I didn't check 100% of Velja's capability with VoiceOver, but everything I tested was accessible, so that's awesome. Now, the one question you may have is why this wonderful app is free. Syndra Sorhorse, I'll get this right, Syndra Sorhus is a prolific open source developer whose work is entirely sustained by donations from the user community. Now, when I say prolific and open source, I mean it. He actively maintains more than a thousand NPM packages. Think of those as mini apps. His libraries are in many of the mainstream packages on which we all depend. In addition to writing packages, he has 31 apps for macOS and iOS listed on his homepage. I'm used to open source projects looking like, you know, a Windows 3.1 interface, but all of Syndra's app look gorgeous, including the icons. Hey, wish you had the touch bar back? He's got a simulator for that. Want to keep your Mac from sleeping? He's got you covered with Lungo. Want to hide sensitive parts of an image? Blackout might be what you want. Wish you were faster at finding the best animated GIFs? Try Jiffy with a J. Uh, let's see, what else? Ever wish there were more options in the share menu? Shareful might add the options you need. Wish you could have any text of your choosing in the iOS lock screen widget? 
any text will be your friend. I may never get any more work done this week because I can't stop downloading and playing with, the, with Syndra's vast library of free apps for macOS and iOS. Check out all of Syndra's tools at syndrasorhus.com and enjoy a better browsing experience with Velja. I would like to give a huge shout out to George Conan as the newest supporter of the PodFeed podcast. This brilliant and generous man, he probably smells good too, went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and pledged a dollar amount that he felt represented the value he gets out of the shows we produce here. I can't thank him enough. He's a beautiful human, and you too could be a beautiful human if you went to podfeed.com slash Patreon. The internet can be a very rich experience for those with visual impairments, but all of us can help make the experience even better for them with very little effort, and it gets more people to see your content. If a person with vision impairments is using a screen reader to enjoy their online experience with either a computer or a mobile device, images mean nothing to them, but they can enjoy your images if you make a very small effort. When you post an image online through social media, you have the option to add a description to that image. These descriptions are often called alt text or, or alternative text. The name doesn't really matter, but I wanted to tell you the phrase because you might run across it in your quest to add descriptions. So you might already be thinking, why should I bother? I can easily give you the motivation to make this small effort. When you write a tweet, are you hoping that people read it? Do you take care of composing it to make it compelling to others? Well, if you're doing all that, why not increase the probability that it will be read and understood by more people? You might also be thinking, sure, that would increase my audience, but how many people out there are actually blind? Well, according to a 2017 report from the National Institutes of Health, 253 million people are blind or have mild to severe visual impairment. In spite of very successful efforts to reduce the root causes of visual impairment, we're living longer, yay, but that means an increase in age-related blindness. Now, while not all visually impaired people need to use screen readers, I hope I've kind of illustrated that a massive number of people could potentially benefit from us adding descriptions to our images. But I bet you think it sounds hard. You think I'm going to describe some arcane process where you have to know weird symbols and programming tricks to get this done. Modern social media tools have made this trivially easy. Before we get into some specific examples of how to do this, let's talk about what makes good descriptive text. I am not an expert by any means, and I hope my visually impaired friends will chime in with improvements on what I'm going to say, but let me take a shot at it. Well, the biggest thing is that more descriptive is better. So today I posted a photo of my dog on Mastodon. In the alt text, I could have simply written dog. Well, technically an accurate description, that really add much value to the reader. Instead, I included her color and what she was doing in the photo. I said her name was Tesla, but since in real life, I always explained that she was named after the physicist, not the car, I added that to the description. It wasn't a paragraph of extra text, but just enough to let people know how it would be perceived if they could see it. I wouldn't write long paragraphs about the image because on top of being time-consuming for you, it's time-consuming for the screen-reading user. Now, the other thing is, don't repeat what's already said. So the screen readers already read out loud the text of your message, so don't repeat any of that in the alt text. So if your tweet says, check out my silly dog rolling on her back, don't repeat that in the alt text. Think about what the sighted user will get from that image and add that to the alt text. 
Maybe in that example, you could write, dog has her tongue hanging out in a goofy way, or she has leaves stuck all over her face. Whatever the person looking at it might get out of that image that would be missing for the blind. Now, I don't know if this is officially sanctioned. I like to have some fun in my alt tags. I enjoy knowing that I'm whispering some secret code into the ears of the visually impaired that the rest of the audience doesn't get to hear. Why not throw in a little humor while we're having that intimate experience? I never know who hears my silliness, but I like to think that I spread a little more joy in the world by doing it. Now, sometimes the image you want to post is a screenshot that includes some text. Maybe it's a meme or maybe it's an actual document with lots of words. I'm not sure if this works on Android or Windows, but on the more recent versions of macOS and iOS, you can actually select the text in an image, copy it, and plop it into the alt text. I don't know if it's considered good form to paste a full-page document's worth of text into an alt tag, and the descriptive text field might not allow for that many characters, but I have done it a few times. I'd love to hear from our visually impaired listeners on whether that's helpful or not. I imagine a link to the content on the source site might be better, that's not always possible. Now that we've got our motivation to add descriptive text to the images we post online, and we know we have the freedom to add little Easter eggs from time to time that only these, uh, those using screen readers get to hear, let's talk about a few apps as examples of what to look for and how easy it is to add descriptive text. While Twitter is still a thing, that's a good place to start. Let's assume you're using the web interface at twitter.com to create your brilliant tweets. You write something clever, then you hit the little icon of a mountain with the sun on it to add an image. You find the image on your desktop and you insert it into the post. In the bottom right of the image, simply click the edit button. You'll get a pop-up with three tabs across the top. The first allows you to crop the image and the last tab lets you add a content warning. The middle tab is simply labeled alt and that's that alt text I was telling you about. Now, before today, you might not even have known what alt even meant, but now you're going to be a pro at this. If you open the alt tab, you get a nice text box where you can type in your secret message to visually impaired people telling them what's in the image. I used a lot of words here, so it's obvious how to do it, but the steps to add are add your image, click edit, click alt, type, hit save. That's pretty easy, right? Now, let's take it up a notch and describe how to do it in one of the most popular Twitter clients, Tweetbot, my favorite. After you add the image, you will see no indication that you can add the descriptive text. But if you tap on the image, you'll see three options. Remove image, view image, and add image description. Select add image description and type away. Now I've gotten really good at remembering to add descriptive text to my tweets, but on Kelly Guimont's advice, I use a tool to get into that habit. She suggested simply following the Twitter account Alt Text Reminder, and text is spelled T-X-T. There's a link in the show notes, of course. So if you follow that Twitter account, if you forget to add the alt text, you will get a very polite, direct message nobody else sees that will say, your tweet has at least one image without a description, and it'll have a link to the tweet where you forgot the descriptive text. Now, it might annoy you to get these messages, but I decided to treat it like a game. If I forget and I get the DM from Alt Text Reminder, I lost a point. If I didn't get the DM, I won. Took me a few months to get to where I never get a warning, but now it's second nature. I love our Slack community at podfeed.com slash Slack, where Nocilla Castaways can chat with each other about tech topics. We definitely have members of our community who use screen readers, so it's super important to add descriptive alt text to images in our Slack. It's easy to add descriptive text images in Slack. After you attach an image to a post in Slack, click on the image. 
you'll see Edit File Details in the upper left of the windows. Sometimes when you upload an image to Slack, it takes a second for it to actually upload, so it's not always there right away. So if you were too quick when you clicked it and you don't see it, just close it and open it again, and then you can add your secret message. Because the Slack interface is written by teams that never, ever talk to each other, adding descriptive text in a completely different place is in a completely different place on mobile. In the iOS app, after you add an image to a post and tap on it, look for the three-dot menu in the bottom right. This brings up a menu with lots of options, including one that says Add Description. I really wish Slack had one way of doing things on every platform. Now, I left Facebook over a year ago, but I know a lot of Nocilla Castaways are still on the platform, so let's talk through the process to add alt text to your images in Facebook. Turns out Facebook has a pretty good support article on how to add and edit alternative text on images. I can't test it for obvious reasons, but they explain that after you add an image to a post, you can hover over the photo and click edit. I'm not sure what happens on mobile since you can't hover, but maybe the option comes up if you tap on the image. Facebook has a cool feature where it will make an attempt to auto-generate a text description for you. I'd sure use this as a starting point, but it might be kind of dry and it might not explain the intent of the photo. So, like, if it's a meme, for example, the point isn't what the text box says, rather it's the joke that results from that text. Unlike Twitter, you can edit your posts on Facebook, so if you do forget to add the text description, you can do it after the fact. Simply click the photo to open it, and then click on the three-dot menu and select Change Alt Text. You do have to override the generated alt text, but then you can type away in your own voice. Since Instagram is mostly a visual medium, I'm not sure how many screen reader folks are on, on the platform, but why not add alt text there too? I left Instagram when I left Facebook, since they're both owned by Meta, so I'll have to rely on the Instagram documentation for adding alt text. After you add an image to an Instagram post, tap on Advanced Settings at the bottom of the screen, and then you should see Write Alt Text. Add your witty text description to explain why this image was worthy of posting, and tap Done. Now, if I haven't described your social media tool of choice, just do an internet search for alt text with the name of the service or software, and I'm sure you'll find out how easy it is to do on that platform. The bottom line is that you don't have to think of yourself as a nice, caring person to want to add alternative text to your images. My ego is big enough to think that my messages are so darn brilliant that I owe it to society to make sure everyone gets to experience them. If you're as brilliant as I suspect you are, all of society deserves to enjoy your posts, too. So, you remember when I was talking about how I used Notion to calculate the uh, time for the episodes, and I said that I had declared that 40 minutes is uh, pretty much a minimum for the show? Well, I've been recording here for uh, coming up on an hour, and I've got 34 minutes of recorded show, and i I'm just tired. So you know what? I'm going to, for, for the first time ever, I'm just going to stop. And the uh, the live show has given me uh, full reign to go ahead and do this. And uh, let's see, the excuses I, they suggested I could give was uh, the doorbell rang. Uh, I could blame Kevin. Let's see, Kurt says, because November. 
Um, people are busy this week. There's a holiday coming up. But this is good because I do have another segment I was going to do for you this week, and I'm just going to save it for next week. So I will be using what I do in Notion to make sure I remember to do that in next week's show. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I'm going to wind it up early for this week, and I'm sorry that I didn't make it to 40 minutes. Oh, somebody else suggested a 10-minute uh, pledge break, but I didn't want to do that. Anyway, uh, remember, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com, and that's where you should send your I'm Still Using It so the show doesn't go short during the holidays. I really would appreciate it if you send me some things from your, you know, from your life. It'd be fun. You can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet while it's still up, and you can find me at Mastodon at Podfeet at chaos.social. If you want to join in the conversation, please join our Slack community over at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show over at podfeet.com slash Patreon like George did, or you can do a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla castaways, like Kurt, who came back after a long time gone. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.